he boasts about God. He boasts about Christ. For Paul, Christianity is not just this religious thing that one does to get by. Christianity is, I think he's boasting about God. I think if you can summarize Paul's mission, he is boasting about God to the unbelieving world. One of my favorite Bible verses, and guys, but if I die early, if I'm 52, so I'm not really technically dying early if I die now, right? This is what should be on my headstone, right? This is my will for you. This is the Bible verse that you should put on my headstone. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of, of let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Oh, what a verse. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the power mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let him boast, boast about this, that he knows me and understands me. Because knowing God, understanding God, is the thing that is true, is the only true thing that is worthy to be boastful about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay? I'm setting it up. So let's go. So we're continuing our series about, not series, a lesson about Paul's instruction, Timothy, about how Timothy should be the man of God. Right? The man of God, once again, people who belong to God. This is different from people who believe God should revolve around them. Man of God is people who believe who revolve around God. Okay? And in verse 14, Paul teaches Timothy that a man, man of God, we're going to talk about verse 13, but verse 14, Paul tells that the man of God must keep the commandment unstained, and free from reproach. So Paul is saying to Timothy, if you are a man of God, you should keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. What is the commandment that Paul is talking to Timothy about here? The commandment. I mean, there's a lot of discussion what Paul means here. Some people say the commandment here means Paul's instruction to Timothy about be faithfully preaching the word of God. But I think most scholars' consensus is the commandment that Paul mentions here is the commandment of the gospel. He is telling Timothy, if you are the person of God, the man of God, you have to obey the commandment of the gospel, unstained and free from reproach. What is the commandment of the gospel? Isn't the gospel saying, I believe I'm a sinner, I believe Jesus Christ died for me, and because, I, because he died for me, right, I'm a new person, and I'm going to go to heaven. Isn't that the gospel? What is there, and maybe the, the, the commandment is to believe in the gospel? It's true. 
but the gospel. And I think there's a lot of things that a lot of preachers don't really fully understand. The gospel has a lot of derivative commandments attached to it. The gospel is not a merely set of postulate doctrine that you agree with. But the gospel, if you believe it, implies a certain way of life. If you believe in the gospel, then you must live in accordance to a lifestyle that is consistent with the gospel. Do you understand? I think we get in trouble when we think, maybe because of the bad sermons we listen to all our lives, when the, and, and the sermons that goes like this, it is, you, you, like, you can't earn your salvation, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, Christ will wipe away your sin. And that is all true. But the negative implication of this simplified version of the gospel is, we're saying, we, we think, we owe God nothing. God only, we think God only wants us to believe in the gospel, and he expects nothing else from us. That's the mistaken belief. Do you understand? Like I told you an example of a friend, a friend of mine a few years ago. She was thinking about having an affair with a married man. And I said, don't do this. You're going to go to hell if you do this. And her answer to me was, how dare you question my salvation? I accepted Jesus Christ when I was 13 years old. And you cannot take away my salvation. I go, what? So it is perfectly possible for you to have an affair and not lose your salvation? Is that what you're selling me? That's the implication, right? We think, if we believe in the gospel, God asks nothing from us. That's all that God wants us to do, is simply believe. It is true God wants you to believe. But belief in God always, always leads to certain lifestyle. The gospel implies commandments and lifestyle that you ought, that you're called to live a certain way. I'll give you an example. Modern notion of the gospel is, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart. Right? I accept. The modern version of gospel is, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart. As long as I accept Jesus Christ into my heart, I am saved. Let's examine the statement. What does the word, what does the word heart mean? What is the definition of heart? In the Hebrew and the Greek, the heart is not merely emotion. It is a center of our consciousness. Your heart in the Bible means how you think, how you feel, what you want to do. That's what it means for heart, right? In the Bible, the heart is merely I feel things. That's not what heart is. Heart is how you think, how you feel, and what you want to do. That's what heart is. Believing in Christ is trusting that Jesus Christ is who he say he is, right? If you trust Jesus as who he say he is, if your mind trusts in Jesus who he say he is, if your emotions trust in Jesus who he say he is, if you want to live 
If you, if, you, if you want to live a life, if your desire is to want to live a life in accordance to who he is, won't the natural implication is, isn't the natural implication you wanting to live a different life? It is true. Accept Jesus Christ in your heart. That's the road to salvation. Yes. But accepting Christ in your heart means living a radically different life. And that is what Paul is saying here. Man of God, a person of God, obey the commandment of the gospel. Live a life that is consistent with who God is. Listen, my Briggs, Meyer, whatever, personality test, right? I'm an I. I'm an introvert, believe it or not. You are shocked that I am, but I guess I am. What makes me an introvert is this. I live in my mind a lot. Yesterday, the greatest thing I've done yesterday, like when I was taking a break yesterday, I was jumping rope for an hour, and I was listening to a book review, for an hour-long book review about why liberalism failed. It was great. I loved it. Right? I was listening to a one-hour discussion about a book review of why liberalism failed. I love doing that. There's nothing more that I like doing than listening to ideas. I live in my head. And for a guy like me, I think as long as I agree with Jesus in my head, I don't have to act in a way that is consistent. There's, there can be a separation between how I think and how I act. Paul is saying, no, there isn't. There can be no difference between how you think, what you say you believe, and how you act. Your actions have to match your belief. Obey the gospel. Unstained, pure, and free from reproach. Free from reproach means live so such consistently with the gospel that people, cannot, people will not be able to criticize you as a hypocrite. That's what it means. But living for the gospel, commandment of the gospel, is hard. It's a fight. We talked about last week. It's a good fight. It's difficult. We don't want to come to church on Sundays. Let's be honest. Any little excuse that we can get, we can use it to justify our non-attendance. Right? We think God will understand me not coming to church because I accepted Jesus Christ and he wants nothing else from me. Right? So I don't have to come. No, 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 no. If you're a gospel, if you are a Christian, you are a worshiper of God. That was, that's what a Christian is. You're a worshiper of God. Therefore, you have to come and you have to worship God with his people. That's what a commandment of the gospel is. But it's hard because we want to do things that are easy. We want to do things that are convenient for us. And the question is, what is the motive? What is the motive? I can tell you all, I can, I can preach here and say you have to obey the commandment of the gospel, but unless you're motivated, you're not going to do it. Right? I can tell, I can preach all about not loving money. 
But if you're, unless you're motivated, you want to live for money. How do you motivate yourself? That's what Paul is talking about. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. You go, what in the world is Paul talking about here? In verse 13, Paul is saying, man of God, your motive has to be based on what Jesus Christ confessed to Pontius Pilate on the day of his crucifixion. The motive of Christianity is who Jesus says he is, especially who Jesus said he is before Pontius Pilate. What was Jesus' confession before Pontius Pilate? What was it? John 18, 37. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is, what is Jesus saying to Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18? He's saying, you say I'm the king of the Jews. He says, it is in fact, I am the king of the Jews. I am the king and I am the truth. And whoever knows the truth agrees with me. Jesus is saying, I am the king, I am the truth. This is the confession of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. What is the motive of Christians? The motive of Christians is recognizing Jesus Christ as the king. It's to recognize Jesus Christ as the truth. The motive of Christianity, it's your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ as king, Jesus Christ as truth. John chapter 19, verse, verse 8 to 11. Jesus answered Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is saying, Pontius Pilate, you think you have authority over me. No, 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 no. You don't have authority over me. The one in heaven has authority over all this. You're just a puppet, an agent of the greater narrative of God. That's Jesus' confession. The motive to live in accordance to the commandment of the gospel is a wider, deeper, boastful understanding of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here in verse 15. Verse 14, Jesus, Paul describes the quality of Jesus. If you're taking notes, I want you to take good notes here or we listen to this because this is Paul's description of Jesus Christ and God. The basis of Paul's faith, the basis of Paul's mission is his identity of who he believes Jesus Christ is. Okay? And these are the quality. These are the basis of the motive of Paul's life. What is the quality of God and Christ in verse 15 and 16? Verse 15, he calls Jesus, he who is the blessed one. In verse 14, 15, Paul calls Jesus, 
the blessed one. What in the world does that mean? The word blessed here means is to be happy, is to be content, it is to be fulfilled. To be happy means there is no need. There's no desire to prove anything. A lot of us are miserable because we don't feel content, right? We have, we have fear of tomorrow. We have a desire to prove our worth to other people. We, 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 like, like we, we, we are just always discontented of who we are and where we are in life. Jesus Christ doesn't have any of that. He is fully content. Blessed means being fully content. Why is Jesus Christ fully content? Because he's God. Because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Omnipotent? He's all-powerful. Omniscient? He's all-knowing. Omnipresent, he is everywhere. He is the ground of reality. He is the agent of creation. He is the reason why all things exist. He holds all things together. He is everything, all things, everywhere, all at once. He has nothing to prove. He is content. Jesus Christ has nothing to prove. He is God. Look, God bless Joe Rogan. You know what Joe Rogan says? He says, Joe Rogan is a huge MMA comment. He's a fan, right? He says, the true champions, the guy who knows that they can really hurt people, they're the nicest people in the world. They don't let like, little guys annoy them because in their minds they know they can hurt that guy. When you know, when you're confident in knowing your strength, Rogan says, they don't let little guys bother them. It's these insecure big men who have something to prove that get easily annoyed. True, powerful people don't get annoyed. That's a similar example. Jesus Christ doesn't get annoyed. There are all these like, like unbelieving men, the wise men of the world, right? The Sam Harrises and the Richard Dawkins and... Who else? The Freuds and the Marx and the Derridas and the Foucaults of the world and the Christopher Hitchens of the world, right? And then Sam Harris's of the world that says God doesn't exist, believing in... I think Richard Dawkins wrote a book called God is Not Great, right? Richard Dawkins is one of the premier evolutionary biologists and he wrote a book, God is Not That Great. They can say all these things about God, but Jesus Christ looked at, looks at them. And according to Psalm 37, he mocks, he laughs at the wicked. Psalm 37, 12, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. 
But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Little men can say insulting things about God, but it doesn't faze Christ, because he's content. And he knows they're just silly little men. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The strongest of men are fools in the eyes of the Lord. They're like gnats. They're like ants. They don't mean anything. Because Christ is God. Okay? That's what it means for Jesus to be blessed. He is God. He is fully content in him, in himself. Jesus Christ, according to verse 15, he is a sovereign, king of kings, the Lord of lords. He, sovereign, he is sovereign, he is king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He means Jesus Christ is absolutely, these are words of absolute, unmatched, unilateral power. Jesus Christ has unmatched, unrivaled, unilateral power. Listen to me carefully. The Bible's definition of power is the, is, 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 is the ability, God's ability to change the events of men and women. God's power is unfolded in time and space. His ability is, um, he, he, he is the God of the visible and the invisible realm. For a lot of us, we just relegate God to the realm of theory and ideas. That's not Bible's definition of, theory, of, of, of God's sovereignty. The Bible's definition of sovereignty is God acting within our time and space. That's Pastor Wooden pray today. He changes things. He makes things happen. I'll give you an example. So last week, I generally watch one football game a year, the Super Bowl. That's it, right? But because I'm a Swifty, I watched the Chiefs and the, who did they play? The Jets last week, right? And I was fascinated. Not by pictures of Taylor Swift. I got annoyed by it after a while. But it was amazing. The first quarter, I mean, for those of you who don't know, football has four quarters, Right? In the first quarter and a half, the Chiefs were dominating. There was a momentum that the Chiefs had. And Jets could not stop them. But in the second half of the second quarter to the third quarter, the momentum shifted. And the Chiefs couldn't stop the Jets. It was the craziest thing you ever seen. You have the $500 million contract, Patrick Mahomes. Right? You have the best tight end, Travis Kelsey. And none of them could stop the Jets. They're a team of one in three. But they can't stop it. This, this is, I write it, oh. It is as if something above these players were controlling the game. 
this momentum. And the only reason why the Chiefs won by three at the end is because Patrick Mahomes saw like the little openings here and there. In a split second, he ran and got a first down, and he ran to get to the end zone. It just, it just these split second opportunities that Patrick Mahomes saw, and he was able to go through it. But even that is a miracle. Football teaches you life. I get it now. Ladies, you should let your husbands watch football. I get it now. Because no matter how expensive your team is, no matter how expensive your quarterback is, no matter how well-received your receivers are, there is a force, a power that cannot, that no man can control. That is what Paul is talking about. Jesus Christ. It's the one who controls the momentum of life. Your life and mine and all the history of mankind, it is he who controls the momentum of things. Daniel chapter 2, verse 23. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up, raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel's saying, all the kings and all the presidents that has ever lived, it is God who, God who instilled them. Look, history is, history is flowing in a certain direction. And there were, like, there, were, there were leaders, like men and inventors and women, who God used to control the flow of history, but no man can ever control the history of themselves. Even Genghis Khan, as much influence and damage that he's done, he cannot ultimately control of, of human history. The one, the one who is in control of human history is God. Not in only a theoretical sense, but also in your personal life. He controls the momentum. He controls who, who comes into your life, who does not. He's the one who gave you your job. He's the one who provides food in your table. In a literal, everyday way, he's the one who provides it. As older as I become, I realize how I am just a beneficiary of his provisions. I really am. I never planned out my career. All the jobs that I ever had was given to me. I didn't choose my children. Like everything in my life, even to the very moment, it is he who controls the flow of my life because he is sovereign over my life. He is sovereign over your life. He is sovereign over the history and the affairs of men everywhere. We get in trouble when we stop believing that he's in control of things. Look, Daniel chapter Four, King, four, verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon, Babylon the, most, the, 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 the most powerful nation of the time. And this is, what, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. He said he was, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said to himself, Is not this great Babylon I have built 
as the royal residence my, by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? So Nebuchadnezzar was walking around his temple court in the roof, and he says, look what I've done. Look what I have made. I made all this by my might and my power. And God says, oh, yeah? The very next verse, he causes Nebuchadnezzar to be insane. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and believes he's an animal. He eats curds and grass, goes out to the field naked, and acts like an animal. When God restores his sanity, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heavens, and my reason returned to me, my sanity returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm the Riz, baby. Is that what the young people are saying? I made all this. Then he lost his mind. And then he regained his mind and says, Oh, now I know. It's not me who made it. It's the Lord. Are you Nebuchadnezzar before the insanity? Or after the insanity? Nebuchadnezzar before the insanity thought he was in control of his life. But Nebuchadnezzar, after his entity, when his reason returned to him and says, it is the Lord who, controlled, who built this. He is in every nook and cranny area of your life, he is in control. So, even this insignificant things, like, for example, so, I was telling the small group, I'm going to mention this, so I mentioned this. I got like a, like a pull-up workstation thing, so I can do pull-ups and dips in, right? I, I bought it, right? And one of the reasons why I bought it was because it's so easily, you can so easily like put it out and take it down, right? Okay, I'm not a handy guy. So I, it came on Friday, I was so excited, I was building it, and I couldn't get one of the, like, the things in. And I got really frustrated. And I said, Lord, help me. Because like it has to like, there's a there's a button attached to one of the pipes. I couldn't push the button. And it was a company. I said, Lord, help me. And my God, as God, God after that prayer, it worked. And I go, oh. It sounds foolish. It sounds insignificant. It sounds so small. But my gosh, people, every even in those individual moments, he is sovereign. To Paul, Jesus Christ is that. Second Corinthians, I love so much. Paul says, I have been blessed by God, but I, God, God has also taken me into dark places. I got beaten up. I got imprisoned. I was shipwrecked, right? But whether God used him for great conversion or whether God was allowing him to go through these Difficult times, he says, all in all, God was there every time. Jesus Christ acted within Paul's history. And Paul experienced the reality of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over his life. And that is not only for Paul, that is for you. 
people, I'm here to tell you, he really is in control of every nook and cranny of your life. He really is. Even the bad stuff. He really, really is. The issue is not that he's invisible. The issue is that you don't think he's in control of, 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 of every nook and cranny over your life. Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's a king of kings. He's a lord of lords. That's what Paul is saying. Oh, Jesus Christ is big. Yesterday during the bazaar, right? During the bazaar, I was there. And the KM played like Christian music, right? And as I was, one of the Christian music that, came, that, that was singing, even Korean was like, Jesus as my friend, Jesus as my friend. The song about Jesus as your friend was like, was like blaring. And I got so mad. Yo goes, this, this song annoys you, right? I go, yeah. Why does that song so annoy me? He is not your buddy. Jesus Christ is not your buddy. He is sovereign. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. Jesus Christ is also he who alone is immortal. This means immortality means Jesus Christ does not change. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. His words are eternal. Who he is, his words, his truth are eternal. They are the foundation, the basis, the structure of reality. He not only has no beginning, no end. He not only is the one who's eternal. He not only, his truth is not only the one who is eternally true. He is the one who bestows eternal life. Look, we believe that every human being will be mortal. When we die here, our consciousness does not cease to exist. We as individual conscious, it will, it will live on. But we can, live our, we can live our eternal consciousness, we can live our immortality either in the kingdom of God, in the reality of God, or in the reality of judgment. Jesus Christ is the one who bestows Immortality, who gives eternal life to people. Jesus Christ, according to verse 16, he is, he is immortal, as I just said. He, he also dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He describes Jesus Christ as an unapproachable light. What in the world does that mean? The word light here means Jesus' God's perfect um, holiness, his perfect, absolutely right, beautiful, glorious, moral perfection. The word light here means the holiness of God, and the holiness of God in this context means God's perfectly glorious, beautiful, magnificent, untainted moral perfection. He is beautifully good. Perfectly good. And the, and the best example I can tell you about the feeling of perfect goodness. I think I told you before. 
It's like when I saw the last Harry Potter movie, right, alone at Tyson's, at Fairfax Corner, like 10 years ago by myself, surrounded by teenagers. It was weird, right? So I was there, right? Just me. My son was of Harry Potter age. I, I, why didn't I take my son? I don't know. Anyway, so I was there, right, watching Harry Potter by myself, right, surrounded by teenagers and, right, and the last scene where when Voldemort got his, the whole theater just clapped, and I clapped along with those teenagers. Me and the Potterheads were one, y'all, because we felt so good. The evil was vanquished. Those are some long movies, man. Three hours each, seven movies, eight movies, right? That's like what? Eight th- that's 24 hours worth of movies. At the end of the 24 hours, he was vanquished. Good was established. That's the closest feeling of moral, not closest feeling, it's one of the examples of morally good I, can, I felt. Jesus Christ is that times infinity. He is morally good. But he's unapproachable. He's unapproachable human beings. Because compared next to his holiness, our sins are exposed. And our sins went before his holiness crushes us. Before the beautiful, magnificent, perfect holiness, magnitude of goodness of Christ, when our sins are exposed. Our sins will destroy us compared to his holiness. Here's an example. I see a lot of movies, by the way. My gosh, I could stop, right? Have you guys seen the movie Fablemans? No? You guys don't? It was, okay, it was a, it's a two-year movie, a one-year movie, so spoiler alert, okay? It's a movie about Steven, Steven Spielberg made a life about his, his childhood, okay? So it's a life about his childhood. Steven Spielberg, when he was in high school, he moved to California, right, to follow his dad. In the California school that he went to, he was bullied by this, like, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed jock, right? Steven Spielberg was a small Jewish kid. A white Aryan kid, like, bullied him, okay? Steven Spielberg, even when he was a teenager, was really talented with the camera, so the school asked Steven Spielberg to film the senior beach trip, right? And present what he filmed at the prom. Got it? So the school says, Steven Spielberg, take your camera, film the senior beach trip, and then present the film during the prom. What Steven Spielberg did was, the kid who bullied him, the Aryan kid, he made the kid look like Superman heroic, good, perfect. And after the movie, the kid came to Steven Spielberg and he started crying. And he said, why did you do this to me? Because the person up on that screen is not me. I am not that good. I am not perfect. I was horrible to you. I am not that person. I am not that good, he says. That's not me. When we go before Christ in his moral perfection, 
And when his moral perfection reveals our sins, we know we're not what we're supposed to be. You understand? Before his goodness, our ugliness is are revealed. How far we are from what he's designed is revealed. When that is revealed, we want to be destroyed. That is why when Isaiah went to the throne of God, when Isaiah saw the glory of God in his vision, the first thing Isaiah said was, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't deserve to be here. That is why when Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. God says, if you see my face, you will die. So what did God do? He places Moses on a cliff somewhere, covers Moses' face when God was passing him by. Why did God do that? To protect Moses. Because if Moses saw the glory of God, the holiness of God, Moses would have been killed. That morally perfect Jesus Christ is the one who came into this earth to die for people who hate him, to die for people who ignore him, to die for people who have no interest, who is living in such a contrary life to him. He died for sinners. That's how much we're loved. In Paul's mind, this is who Jesus is. Your problem, mine. We walk through life not being aware of this identity of God. Alistair Beck, the great preacher Alistair Beck says, the reason why we're so anxious, we're so nervous, we're so depressed over our lives, It's because we don't consider God in any part of our lives. We don't filter our lives through the identity of God. Paul filtered everything that was ever happening to him through the identity of God. We don't do that. When bad things happen, we just immediately just think about what these bad things mean to me and how unjust it is, how unfair it is, and how, how problematic it is. We don't consider God at all. And the reason why Paul mentioned these qualities of Jesus Christ and the reason why I preach this quality, these qualities of Jesus Christ to you is because you need to consider this. You need to filter everything in your life through this identity, through this magnificent identity of Jesus Christ. You need to do this. Okay? Look, why was David able to defeat Goliath? Because he had godly perspective. He filtered Goliath through the, through the lens of the sovereign God. You need to do it too whether it is your work or home or family or boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it is, filter it through the sovereignty and the immortality and the moral holiness of God. That is 
It is a person who has this, who filters things with Christ. When this person sees money, we're going to talk more about that next week. He's going to see money in a different way. Paul says in verse 17, do not be haughty with money. Haughty haughty means arrogant. Be boastful. And do not put hope in money, which means do not treat money like it's God. Right? How are you not going to treat money as an instrument of pride? How are you not going to treat money as an instrument of your security and purpose? You need to filter things through God. Look, last thing I'll say. I had a brief exercise yesterday during my prayer time. I go, what if I wasn't a Christian? What if I wasn't a Christian? Then I would think I would really live for my job. I really will. And I will save as much money as I can. And I will buy the most expensive after, you know, reasonable savings, right, that Sean Stark would be proud of. After the reasonable saving that Sean Stark would be approved of, I will use my money to buy things that will prove my worth to you. I will buy that Porsche Boxster. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to buy Carrera because I don't, I'm not that rich. I buy that Boxster. Why not? I'll live in a bigger house. I'll live in Great Falls. Why not? And I will look down upon you who don't drive a Boxster. I will do this. You don't think I will? I'll be nice to you. Oh, but if I weren't a Christian, money will be used to distinguish me from you. What imbecility is this? What stupidity is this? It is when you filter things with, through Christ, you get perspective about money, can't you see? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Well, not next week, two weeks from now. Next week, Pastor Richard is preaching. Two weeks from now, let's preach. Let, let's pray. The question we ask ourselves is this. Is your faith resting on the identity of God?